Before I begin, I want, to, uh, I want to thank all of you for being here, and I also want to thank Jeff Colton uh, for being our liturgist this morning. Uh, it's not in the bulletin because I was scrambling at the beginning of last week to get all this together and think it through, and Jeff is one of the few people I know who can actually step in like that that quickly and pull it all together. Thank you, Jeff, so much. Uh, let's indeed, thank you, sir. <laughs> Let's start this morning with our, our scripture lesson, which is drawn from uh, both the Old Testament and the New this morning, from uh, uh, the, book of, uh, the second book of Kings and also uh, the letter of Paul to the Romans. Listen now to God's word. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not just gather a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons, and then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go. Sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons live on the rest. And then from the New Testament, from Paul's letter to the Romans, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. May the Lord Blessed to our hearts and our minds, this reading from his word. Amen. So, how many people have heard of Pavlov's dogs? Right. In case you haven't, uh, Pavlov's dogs uh, is, the, uh, is the research of a Russian physiologist called Ivan Pavlov. And I think he was 1845 to... 1930 or something like that. He won the Nobel Prize for this research in 1904. Um, and basically, you probably know the outlines. I, I encountered uh, the story of Pavlov's dogs and his research in Psych 101 in college. Um, what Pavlov did is he took dogs and he surgically implanted uh, sort of devices that would measure the amount of saliva flow in the dog's mouth. And then you know the story. He would bring them food, and of course the dogs would salivate, and he would record how much they salivated. And at the same time that he brought the food, he would pair the food offering with a buzzer, with a sound. And every time the dogs got the food, they heard the buzzer. And then, as you know, eventually he could not even give the food and just make the buzzer ring and the dog would salivate. And all of us know this is true. Uh, we have cats at home, and we have a food whistle which we use, and we use it every time we give them the food, and if we use the whistle and don't have the food, our cats still lick their chops and wait for the food to appear. 
So it makes perfect sense if you've had pets. And in a way, it also, it also makes sense from the point of view of sort of common sense. Um, because what it reinforces for us is the way we live in the world. For, so the world for us usually works the following way. The world is out there, <coughs> and it sort of gives me things. It sends things, the conditions on the ground. Uh, and I either, either it's good things, in which case I like that and I want more of it, or it's bad things and I don't want that, or it's neutral things and I don't care. And that's pretty much it. Most things come over the transom in those three flavors. Stuff I like, stuff I don't like, and stuff I don't care about. And what, what I think this uh, story about the widow and Elisha is going to do today is essentially it, it reverses it. It reverses that common sense understanding that we all grow up with and that even Pavlov's dogs got, which is that something out there happens and then I respond. And with the story of Elisha, in a way, it's, it's almost proposing a radical kind of experiment that, said, that says, what would it be like if we started within first, before the facts on the ground, and then the world does what it does? What would that be like? And in a way, this is not that new in the Bible. Uh, in Proverbs, there's a famous line you may have heard, which says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And even other religions <coughs> think this too. The, uh, one of the uh, foundational texts in Buddhism is the so-called Dhammapada. It's very old. And the very first line in the Dhammapada is, all that we are is a result of what we have thought. It's a lot to ponder. So what I'd like to do today is is take this story, which is couched in a lot of symbolism for sure, but to sort of tease apart the symbolism and let Elisha do the teaching and see what we can learn about this radical experiment that I think is sort of embedded in the symbolism. Now, one symbol that you need to know for this to make sense is that oil itself is a symbol in the Bible. Uh, you may have heard of it before. One of the phrases in the Bible is the oil of joy or the oil of gladness. Uh, and in our 23rd Psalm, which is on the back window there that we say every communion service, we say, thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. And so oil through the New Testament and the Old was a symbol of, of, of plenty, of joy, of deep contentment, of God's blessing upon us, uh, of the joy that comes from deep within. And that's an important part of this story, an important symbol to know about. So let's review the story. Um, uh, the widow is a widow, and her husband, who has now died, is someone who knew Elisha. Uh, and she, uh, apparently when her husband died, he unfortunately left some debts, and now the creditors are going to come after her sons. You'd think they'd come after her because she was married to the guy with the debt, but women weren't that important back then, so they would go after the sons, just the historical fact. And so she's pretty much at the end of her rope. And she explains the whole thing to her. And he surprises her, I imagine, by saying, what have you got in the house? And she says, well, I've got a little oil. And then he gives what we could only call very strange advice, <laughs> which is go out there and collect lots of empty 
oil bottles from all your neighbors and bring them home. And don't just collect a few. He's very explicit about that. Don't just collect a few. Collect as many as you can get. Bring them by the truck. And then go in and shut the door. Also very explicit, very explicit directions. Shut the door and then get pouring. And so, okay. So off she goes and does it. Now, there's other symbols in there, too, that are also famous in the Bible. One is shutting doors. Now, you, remember, uh, you may remember in the New Testament, when his disciples ask, how should we pray? Jesus says a bunch of things, including the Lord's Prayer. But one thing he also says, you may remember, is he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who go out there in the public square and heap phrases on top of one another to be heard. Instead, Go into your room and shut the door and pray in secret. So shutting the doors throughout the Bible is a very deep and important symbol of, of gaining that alone time, that sense of interior time where you can be with God. Now, doors are used for lots of things. Doors can shut things out and they can shut things in. Um, and I think that we see both elements in this story of Elisha and the widow. Uh, doors, for one thing, can be used simply to reduce the amount of noise on the outside. So, that, and it's from that, really, that all of the great meditation traditions are born. All of the great spiritual practices that say, in some form, you need to actually get yourself apart, just like Jesus did, set yourself apart, and pray and be alone to find out who you really are again, so that you don't just become more of what the world is saying all the time. Let me ask you a question. How many people here in this room know a thing that you can do, a, a system, a practice? A th maybe it's sitting quietly, maybe it's taking a walk, maybe it's whatever it is. A thing that you can do that gathers you back into yourself, that shuts the doors on all of the sensory overload. How many of you know a thing that you can do that really works for you? Hands up. Good. That's encouraging. Now here's another question. How many of you have done that yesterday? Fewer hands. <laughs> so that's an important thing to know, which is that um, shutting the door actually needs to happen. It can't just be an idea in our minds. I didn't raise my hand either because I didn't do it yesterday and I probably should have. It has to be something that we actually do. In the Psalms, God says, be still and know that I am God. The order there is important. Not, oh, well, I know you're God, so I guess I'll find a time to sit still. Be still and then you'll know that I am God. So, just like when you were a little kid or I was a little kid and I'd go out and play and get all dirty and your mother would say to you, okay, go take a shower now. And you'd stand, remember that? You'd stand under the water and all the dirt would roll right off of you. And it was just great. That's what practices like that do for us, except for our spiritual hygiene. We need to let some of that debris just roll off of us on a regular basis so that we can find out who we are when we're on our own and the doors are shut. So that's the first thing that doors do. But in a way, the other thing that doors do is they also, by shutting out the world, they give us a chance to see what the world is saying. What the world is saying and differentiate it from ourselves. In a way, 
Elisha is sort of is saying, imagine that the world, or rather, imagine that your mind is like a little room. It's like a little room in a little house. And in it are pieces of furniture and maybe mementos of, of your past and, and all the things that make you who you are. That's your little space. But also, on the walls, on the wallpaper, there's writing. There's writing. There's all the things that people have written on your wallpaper all since the day you were born. All kinds of things, right? And a lot of them are just great things. So I remember when I was a kid, I'm sure you all do too, remember when people would say, and what are you going to be when you grow up? And you'd answer, I always answered I wanted to be a paleontologist because I thought dinosaur bones were totally cool. But I had an answer. And so that was the objective, factual thing that I said. But what was really important, because I didn't become a paleontologist, what was really important was that in that moment, somebody was writing on my wall. Somebody was writing something wonderful on my wall. They were writing, you can do the things that you love. You can set your mind to this, and the world is open for you to go and just inhale it and love topics and love learning and all of that. That was being written on that wall for me. And, and, and I began to expect that life would be that way. Many good things were written on the walls, on the wallpaper for all of us, and they enabled us to be here and to, and to function and live joyfully. And then there are the other things that are written on the walls. And it being wallpaper, we don't always see it, right? Because after a while, it's like the wallpaper. It is wallpaper. You don't know what's written on it. You get kind of used to it. And so you may miss the other things that got written by people who meant well, but it was their own handwriting that they were writing there. Uh, but some of the things that I've identified on my wallpaper over time are things like, can't really trust people. Or, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Or, yeah, relationships are tough. Or, there's never enough of the good stuff. That last one was the widows, right? Elisha says, well, what have you got? And she's like, well, a little bottle of oil, not much, right? Not much oil of joy for her these days. Not much oil in that bottle for her. But what's radical in that moment is that Elisha knows something different about her life. She doesn't know it yet, but he knows it. He knows that she doesn't have an oil problem. She has a jar problem. She doesn't have anywhere for that oil to go, right? Could be three drops, could be three gallons, doesn't matter. Doesn't have anywhere to put it. So he says, hey, let's think big, really big. Go out there and get every empty jar you can, and don't just make it a few, and bring them all in here for, and start pouring. And she does it. Although, can you imagine what she thought? Can you, she must have thought he was crazy. Can you, dude, I need not to think about oil. I'm not making salads. I need cash, cold, hard cash. I needed it yesterday. I need it for my sons who are about to be put in the slammer. Why are we talking about oil? But she goes off and does it anyway. And by doing that, she opens herself up to the really radical 
thing that Elisha is about to teach her, which is the suspension of disbelief. The suspension of disbelief. Now, you may know that in the United States, every state has a motto, has a little saying associated with that state. I think, isn't one of them live free or die? Somebody was saying that. Which one is that? New Hampshire, that's what it is, right. And so every state has those. Somebody just said that to me after the first service, and they was calling off some of the mottos. So you may know, or you may not know, but you may know the motto of the great state of Missouri. Everybody remember what it is? What is it? The show me state. Missouri's the show me state, right? And it, I always like that one. It seems to encapsulate homespun Midwestern values, right? Ah, just show me the evidence, right? It, it, I looked it up a little bit because it's not always clear where that phrase comes from, but as far as people know, there was a, a congressman, a uh, United States congressman from Missouri called Willard Vandiver in 1899, and he declared this, which is where we got it from. He said, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton, cockleburs and Democrats, and frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri. You're going to have to show me. <laughs> People really knew how to talk back then. <laughs> and, you know, as far as it goes, that's great, right? Because, I mean, who doesn't get behind that? That sounds like healthy skepticism. That sounds like, never mind the fancy words, show me the evidence. Everybody agrees with that, right? That's just part of being a functioning adult. I don't care about all the fancy stuff. Show me the goods. Show me the evidence. As far as that goes, absolutely, we can get behind that. But have you noticed how sometimes there's another interpretation of that idea? It's a little bit different. I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I see it. Right? In other words, that's, that's reinforcing what we talked about at the beginning. Things out there need to show up. Conditions on the ground need to be a certain way. And I'll believe it. When I see it out there then I'll believe it in here. I'll see it when I believe it. I'll believe it when I see it, rather. That would make sense, and it sounds like it makes sense, except that the music teacher in me knows that that's not true. It doesn't work that way. So, how many people here have ever learned a musical instrument, even for just a little bit? Hands up. Ooh, all kinds of people. Why aren't you in my choir? Anyway. How many people, even if you didn't learn a musical instrument, learned to do something athletic where you needed to practice and practice and practice and you were terrible at it at first, but you got better and you practiced? How many people did that? All kinds of people. Good. So you know that while it sounds like it makes sense to say, I'll believe it when I see it, it doesn't really work that way. That's not the end of the story. So I'll focus on learning a musical instrument because that's something I understand pretty well. It's always amazing to me as a musician that people learn an instrument at all. Just amazing to me that they do it. Have you ever had a kid who, or maybe you, maybe you were that kid, who tried to learn violin or trumpet? It's a year and a half of pure hell. Pure, unadulterated hell. It sounds like they're slaughtering cats in the basement, right? As they scrape and saw away, and you're trying to be supportive, but oh, gosh. What an experience, because some instruments like violins and trumpets have a really steep learning curve, and you just aren't going to sound at all good for a really long time. The facts on the ground are going to say, to the way you sound. 
I remember this. When I was a kid, violin was my first instrument. And I remember sawing away and sounding like cats being slaughtered in the room. But I also had forgotten until my mother reminded me of something else that I did. And she told me, now I, now I remember it, that um, when I was done practicing, which was as minimal as I could make, I would then put my violin in the case and I would parade around the living room. With my, I was about seven years old. Parade around the living room. And I remember now, I remember doing that. And in that moment, I was the world-famous violinist who was about to play at Carnegie Hall. I felt it. I had it in my bones. Music is like that. A lot of life is like that. Learning an instrument is like that. There's an aspect of not yet. Not yet do you know how to play that D major scale. Not yet. And at the same time, an aspect of already done. In my marching around with my fiddle, I wasn't, oh, I hope I can become a famous violinist one day. I was that violinist. I was living it. I was breathing it and tasting it, and I was experiencing it as though it were here now, as though it were a fact on the ground, even though it was supported by no evidence except the sound of cats being slaughtered as I tried to saw away on the violin. What Elisha is trying to point out is that sometimes we have to act toward our intended vision before the facts on the ground catch up. It's like learning that instrument. And that's a scary time because you don't get a lot of positive feedback. And the world will tell you all kinds of things, right? Well, maybe you ought to quit. You don't sound that good, right? Maybe violin isn't for you. Maybe drums. <laughs> or the world will say things, right? Even as you grow older, the world will say things like, that's not very practical. I don't think you can do that. You don't have enough money. Maybe you're too old. Maybe you don't have time for that. The, the world will say those things, right? I mean, and the world even probably said it to the widow. Can you imagine what the conversation was in the house that evening? There she is with her tiny little jar with the three drops of oil in it and all these empty jars in front of her and her son's looking at her and the oil and the little and saying, how exactly is this supposed to work? And yet, she gets pouring. She gets pouring. You know, in a way, it reminds me of that 23rd Psalm. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Every now and then when I hear us, and we say that every month here, I always think, next time bring a bigger cup. But it's a serious question, too. It's a question that comes out of this story, too. Where in your life are you operating with a really small cup? Where there's not much room for much oil of joy. Maybe you only bring a small cup to the table because, well, you've been disappointed before. Right? You don't want to hedge your bets. Don't want to be, you know, caught out there looking like a fool. So you come with a small cup or maybe a thimble. And surprise, that's the oil you have. It's as much as it can fit into a cup. Where do we have a, a small cup in our lives? Because Elisha is saying, get all the cups, get all the jars, get all the vessels you can. And do you notice the little warning in the story? 
When the widow finally says, hey, bring me the next jar, and one of the kids says, well, they're, they're all, that's it, they're all full, there are no, money, are, are no more jars. Remember what happens? The oil ceased. That's an interesting little teachable moment. Maybe if she'd had more jars, there would have been more oil. Kind of makes you wonder how small are the jars that we might be bringing to our lives. The really radical, radical part of this story is that what Elisha is teaching us is that by, by creating this way, by, by pouring forth the oil that you've got, right? Because we, we're like the widow. We probably think, well, I don't have much oil. Maybe I don't feel like I've got much oil right now at this point in my life. But what Elisha is saying is, if you do this this way, if you pour forth before the facts are on the ground, you do that because when you do that, you're like God. Because that's how God creates. Remember in Genesis, in the beginning, the Spirit of God is hovering over the complete wild depths of chaos. Talk about no facts on the ground. There's nothing. And yet beginning with a thought, God says, let there be light. God says to you today, where can you pour forth into your life without the facts being on the ground first? Right? I'll believe it when I see it. Well, then you'll wait a long time to learn that violin because you're going to have to sound bad and you're going to have to cling to that vision. Where can you do that in your life? Now, you might say, well, that's easy for you, God. You're God. To which I think God would say to you, so what? You're not Pavlov's dog. God says to you and to me, I created you. I breathed the breath of life into you and made you in my image and likeness. God's image and likeness is what every single person in this room is made in. Have you ever thought about that? That'll blow your mind. What does that mean to be made in God's image and likeness? It doesn't mean arms, arms and legs, because God doesn't have those. It can't be that. It doesn't mean needing to eat, needing to sleep, because God doesn't do any of those things. Can't be that. It doesn't even mean that you have a body which is born and will die. God doesn't do any of that. And yet, and yet, you're made in God's image and likeness. Well, if it's not any of those things, what's left? What's left is to create and to love. That's where you're made in God's image and likeness. That's how God creates, before the facts are on the ground, before the conditions have risen to meet what you need to do. You don't scan out there and see if it's okay first and then pour forth your oil. You get pouring. Because when you do that, you're like God. That's the only thing left. And that's enough. That's enough. I'll leave you today with a, a line from one of Mary Oliver, uh, an American poet, one of her poems. I'm sure you've heard this line before, but it's wonderful. She asks, tell me, what is it you plan to do 
with your one wild and precious life. And I think God and Elisha have an answer to Mary Oliver, which is to love and to create just the way God does it, just the way God called you into being to do it before the facts are on the ground. Don't let anything dissuade you. Carry that vision forward. Cling to it. Don't expect things to be out there first. It doesn't work that way. And by doing it, you make the world new. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for all the ways that you accompany us through our life, down through our life, through our death, and into fuller life. Thank you for all the ways you've shown your hand in this past week, all the tiny promptings, the nudgings, the finger that points, that forever shows us our true north. Help us to be exactly like you, to create out of that deep joy, that deep desire to create regardless of the facts on the ground, regardless of the conditions. And help us to know that when we do that, we create just the same way that you created us. Amen.